This is Pixelated Audio, and you're listening to Early Game Music with They Create Worlds. to Pixelated Audio, a podcast focusing on game audio, its history, and the people behind it. The track that brought us in was Wandering Across Cesaria from Ultima 3 Exodus on the Apple II, composed by Kenneth Arnold. We are your hosts. I'm Brian, and this is Gene. Hey, everybody. Yeah, and we've got a great show lined up for today. Yeah, we actually have some special guests joining us. We'll bring them up in just a moment, but uh, we're here with another episode going back to talk a little bit about early music. It's something we have uh, been doing a little bit more recently. Uh, We're going to be covering the era from about 1977 to 84, in other words, before the NES rose to dominance. As listeners know, we like to change things up a bit from time to time, so the guests that we have joining us today are Alex Smith and Jeffrey Dom of the podcast They Create Worlds. So they're going to talk to us about a lot of this music and some of the historical stuff that's going on. So before we dive too deep, can you guys tell us a little bit about yourselves? Well, first, welcome to the show. Yes, welcome to the show. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. No, it's great to be here. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, certainly a great musical number to bring us in on, too. Oh, yeah. What a joyful tune. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so um, the reason why we uh, wanted to collaborate with you guys is because you guys get into so much detail on your show uh, about um, the game history and the business side of stuff. And so we thought, wow, this would be a really fun thing to pair up. You know, we tend to just focus only on the music. I mean, that's what our show's about. And you guys are really on like the culture and the history and everything. A lot of the business side On, on, too, on yeah. business, you know, like the, yeah. a lot more than that we have time to dig into. So um, yeah, tell us about what you guys are, what you guys are doing. 
Absolutely. So uh, the podcast that we do together is called uh, They Create Worlds. Uh, it can be found uh, pretty much at all the major uh, podcast propagators, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, it uh, spins off of the research that I've been doing uh, in the video game history for over a decade now and really trying to provide some nuance to our understanding of how the industry developed and how the companies in the industry developed and where the business side of the industry fits into things. Uh, because we definitely talk about games too and we love games, both myself and Jeff are lifelong gamers. But it feels like there's this dichotomy that has come up in the fandom uh, of retro games, especially where it's like creative, good, business, bad. And we want to try to offer some nuance to that because while there are certainly periods of time where business people have gotten in the way of creative, there are also times that creative people have gotten in the way of good business. And what we've found is that it's really when both sides of that are in balance that you get some of the best work in the industry. So we cover a lot of company histories, we cover a lot of genre histories, primarily looking to see how the industry developed and also tracing the chains of influence uh, between games and between game concepts and game genres, which is why uh, joining with you guys here to kind of go through an early history of game audio is perfect because that does kind of tie into that whole chains of influence thing where we can see how these first primitive little ditties started growing and expanding into what we consider video game music today. Exactly. And so that's something that's often overlooked, I think, too, is, you know, listening to a lot of like just game podcasts in general, a lot of people really focus on you know, maybe just the design team or the the music team and the uh, you know the the lead engineers or or maybe the um, the producers or something around that side, but they don't think so much about what was actually going on in the business side, and that's a very mm-hmm. um, it's almost like a blind spot for most of gaming history. We don't you know like we you know hear a few things about like some of the big companies, but you know a lot of these smaller companies uh, that gets that gets lost in the fold and i think um what you guys are doing is great because I, i've learned so much through just listening to the the few episodes i've listened to already i know jeans listen to oh, a lot yeah. more i have to say <laughs> Man, the, nuance, the nuance that you guys add has really given me a new perspective on how i view more of the tech not even the technical more on the business side of things and i i mm-hmm. think it's really easy to forget that to echo something you say a lot on your show, there would be no games industry without the games business. You know, the actual, right. the money, the, the the partnerships, all those various things that really happen to allow the creatives to have their space, to build their products, to bring them to market so that we can enjoy them. I mean, we wouldn't be doing our show if there was no game industry. So there's a knock-on effect, obviously. Right, right. <laughs> Absolutely. And... Uh, you know, it's it's my love of the history and the delving into the history, but then it's combined with Jeff, and he's the one that really got into the audio side and said that we ought to do a podcast because I was basically telling him all of these stories of things I was researching. And uh, well, you can take the story from there, Jeff. <laughs> tell tell him why we started this thing real fast. Uh, basically, I just got enthralled with how Alex has always just told these stories as we got together socially for whatever over dinner, hanging out, playing some games or whatever. And he'd tell me about the research he was doing, who he interviewed, something that might have been going on in the game industry. And I just became so enthralled with it that I said, you know, I really enjoy this. I'm looking for an excuse to play around with audio. Let me buy some mics and I will record you, go through the effort of editing it myself, put it out there and see, is anyone else out there even remotely interested in it? And lo and behold, here we are, a guest on your podcast where... (laughs) 
<laughs> we have people who are actually really interested in history and all the interesting stories. And there's certainly a lot of interesting connections that are brought in of how it just ties into society at large and how it just permeates all of our life experiences. Yeah, actually, uh, you mentioned that you're you know, a guest on our show, and I wanted to make a quick thanks to Ethan for joining us. He was the one who emailed us and put us in touch with you guys. I, you know, I have to be honest, there's so much out there that I probably wouldn't have found you on my own. Uh, no, there's I so mean, many podcasts. Oh, yeah, sure. there's so many. Absolutely. And I was extremely, like, usually the first thing that happens when an email comes in is I'll be like, okay, somebody's emailing us about something. Let's see. Let's, you know, tug is it on a this. marketing thing? Yeah, or yeah let's it, yes. tug on the string to see what, what's here. <laughs> And, uh, you know, at first it seemed a little bit promotional, but the more I, I dug in, I was really impressed with the, the quality of the work you were doing. I, I brought my A-game with these research notes as best I could. And I was really happy that, that you know, he put us together. So thanks again to uh, Ethan Johnson for, for bringing us together and making the show a reality. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, he's been uh, a real friend to everybody, kind of in the quasi-academic enthusiast community, you know, the non-institutional people uh, that have become very interested in the preservation and the uh, recording of this history. And uh, one of his great passions is bringing people together and bringing knowledge together and bringing resources together from across the spectrum. So he's been helping out. Uh, the reason it may have seemed a little promotional when it first came in is we are making a big push because I just did release, uh, or rather CRC Press just released my first uh, published book on the history of the video game industry. Uh, they Create Worlds. Congratulations. Yeah, that's, that's oh, a huge thank accomplishment. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and, and that one is uh, They Create Worlds, the story of the people and company that, that shaped the video game industry, volume one, uh, which goes up to about 1982. And that's kind of why we chose uh, together uh, in collaboration to focus this episode on some of the really early music stuff, both because it, it isn't covered very much and just because it kind of dovetailed with what I had just been uh, digging into on my own as well. Yeah. Right. And we, we push out a little bit beyond that 82 mark just because... I, I don't want to be, you know, cute here. The music does get just a little bit more interesting <laughs> like from, from 82 to 84. Right. And there's this very, oh, yeah. we'll talk a little bit more about it, but there's this very interesting period from 82 to 84 where it was sort of a, well, we'll get into it. You know, the video game crash, <laughs> yeah. whatever. But it was a very unusual time, but there were still interesting developments happening. So yeah. uh, with that said... We'll, we'll, uh, we'll try to keep the pace good because this could be like, like you know... It could be a longer a, show. A 12-hour yeah. show. And so we'll try to keep it yeah, going. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at a, a lot of notes here. A lot of yeah, very yeah. interesting notes. But yeah, we got ground to cover. Yeah. <laughs> so so let's actually start with some, some background here. So what was going on in the mid-70s before the games really took off, or even the early 70s? In terms of... Well, the entertainment land landscape so like you know gotcha. you, you talk about on your show a lot about uh, games didn't just it wasn't like and first there was pong right games came sure, from somewhere sure. before yeah so th there were kind of two separate threads that were going on uh in these earlier days none of this is uh, very audio focused but so we'll, we'll get past most of that quickly but even though the commercial industry started in the early 1970s you had both a kind of uh institutional computing, particularly at universities, where you were getting more and more experimentation, uh, primarily by students, uh, that were creating their own simple games. And that started bleeding out of institutions like uh, Dartmouth and MIT, even into high schools. So one common theme of a lot of the early people that got involved in computer games 
or even computer programs in general, is that their first um, interaction with computers was in their school through a teletype hooked up to a time-sharing mainframe. Mm-hmm. Uh, Richard Garriott, for instance, who we were just playing from his game, you know, that was his experience, that teletype showing up in his classroom. Uh, Bill Gates, of course, as well, very famously, and Paul Allen in the Microsoft crowd, uh, you know, had a, a terminal at their institution. So games were being shared in that space. Uh, but if we're talking about uh, the commercial analog, the real thing that was pushing it, of course, was the coin-operated amusement industry that uh, had existed uh, in some form or another since the 1880s and had really kind of first hit its stride during the Depression in the 1930s. And when people think about that today, they largely think about pinball. Uh, Understandably so, because it was by far uh, the most popular of, of those kind of amusements. But there was a move that was just starting in the late 1960s that was very appropriate to what would happen in video games. And that was a move towards incorporating electronics into what had, until that point, been an entirely electromechanical medium. Now, we're still talking about primarily electromechanical games. We're still talking about things like relays and steppers and... uh, those kinds of timing devices, but you start to see some experimentation with some electronic components, and particularly, actually, audio was one of these areas. Uh, There were a series of games released in the late 1960s that were actually called in the trade press audiovisual games, because they were trying to impart this idea that there's something a little more realistic about what is going on here than your shooting gallery game when a little metal target pops up and you you shoot it with your little pellet gun or something right, like right, that. Yeah, yeah the and, lights dinging yeah. and, and sounds going off and things <laughs> like that. Exactly. And so you started to have uh, more sophisticated games that were using wipers and contacts uh, kind of under the table and in much bigger cabinets to uh, register hits on targets, and they were starting to use uh, various techniques, including slides, including even animation in some cases, spinning discs, and other tricks. It reminds me of um, that, uh, what was it, Back to the Future 2 or 3, when he goes to the, it's the Wild West? Is that's that the first, one. The third yeah. one. That's and, the third and one, And he's yeah. like doing the sharpshooter thing, and it's like hitting all the metal pans, and like, that's, right. <laughs> that's what I think about when I think of that, yeah. Right, exactly. Uh, and you were starting to get some more sophistication, and part of that sophistication was the audio. Now, they were still basically using analog, you know, they were creating noise, white noise, pink noise, whatever, to create a lot of the sound. But you were getting games like uh, Sega's Periscope, very famous, and uh, some helicopter games and other stuff like that, where you had hums of engines and sounds of explosions uh, that were much more sophisticated than what had been done in the arcade before that. And these games were basically video games without the video it's the the form of it was very similar to uh to what we think of as video games today and in fact many of the early video game hits uh like seawolf from midway or like uh western gun slash gunfight from taito uh and then midway in the united states were derived from electromechanical games of this time period that were getting uh more and more complex it's really honestly super fascinating and and the first I'd really heard of it, I, there's a tiny note on the line here in the notes, and I didn't know really where that was going to go. So I was really he- happy to hear it from you directly. So moving on a little bit, um, 
Pong tends to be the first game that people talk about, but from a musical perspective, really the first game that we hear about is uh, Boot Hill in 1977. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually may have gotten that information a little bit wrong. We said that it was the original gunfight in 75. And I think a lot of people do too. And that could be, um, I, and I'm not sure, was this one of you guys that posted this in our, in our yeah, chat? Yeah, they posted it in the chat. Yeah. This was Ethan, though, to, to give credit. Ethan's okay. the one that did this research. And what he posted in the chat was uh, his own blog post that he did discussing this. So. Right, right, right. So um, if, do you want to explain this a little bit? Because I, essentially what it is, I guess we'll just get through this, is that gunfight um, in MAME would have could be partially incorrect because the um, game is almost the same. It's, it's virtually the same, the same game. It's, it's a one-on-one like yeah, it's the dual same thing game. as Boot Hill, which was the second version of the game that had come out a few years later. So originally we thought it was 1975, but that might not be the case. And it could have been Boot Hill that has that, you know, the dun, 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 and then yeah, the, the funeral blah, 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 march. All that stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, but no, that's 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 still hard to. We have so few arcade machines surviving from that time, and we don't know if their parts are all working correctly, or I, what's been replaced, or you know. So, like, we could have essentially we've seen video of uh, gunfight in the arcade, but we don't know what was working and what wasn't. So we can't completely write it off because they are based on the same hardware. But like, yeah, it, it yeah, the ones I've seen, yeah, it looks it, like. Oh, go on, sorry. No, oh, I was going to say no. You're right. You can't completely write it off, but it is almost certain that they didn't get there until Boot Hill. Um, you know, one thing, uh, those games, both uh, Gunfight and Boot Hill, were created by a company called uh, Dave Nutting Associates. Gunfight was based on the title game Western Gun, but it's it's a complete redesign of it. It's actually very different. I see. And uh, Dave Nutting Associates was the pioneer, the true pioneer of the concept of system hardware, because... Before that time, and even after that time, uh, for a great period of time, especially when you didn't have microprocessors on the hardware, since you had to create custom circuits for every aspect of game creation, every single game, for the most part, was a completely unique creation. You created a completely new circuit board for every single game, or set of circuit boards as the games became more complicated. And maybe you would reuse a board for a sequel that was somewhat similar, but on the whole, everything was just done over again. Right. And, and the logic could a have lot changed. Of peop- exactly. And, you know, a lot of people think that uh, microprocessors would have immediately alleviated that. And uh, the truth is, no, it actually didn't. Because even though you had a microprocessor at the heart and you could do a lot of things in software, those early 8-bit microprocessors like the 8080 were not that powerful in and of themselves. So you still needed a lot of TTL hardware to do uh, graphics work and sound work, uh, particularly. Well, that's even why like we look at any of the boards from the 80s still. And even though we have microprocessors on there, we have a board that's like the size of, you know, an Amazon shipping box, you know, <laughs> yeah. for, for a, a dishwasher, you know, so it's, well, it just goes to show that a lot of these early musical examples might not be that interesting musically, but think about how much work it took to put that in the board and, and, right. and out the hardware in the first place. So I, right. I, I think that's, that's a huge accomplishment. And to your point, building a basically brand new arcade machine, which it mostly was in the early days from the ground up every mm-hmm. single time was probably a pretty massive amount of effort. It, it was, absolutely. And with Boot Hill and uh, a couple of the other games uh, made from that same system, uh, Dave Nutting Associates was the first one that came together and created a full system hardware that 
not only had a microprocessor, but it had a custom graphics chip, it had custom this, it had custom that, to create a complete system that could be reused over and over. And they were actually ahead of their time because it was really not until the early 80s that most other companies started doing that same thing. Right. Uh, but but they were kind of at, at the forefront of this. And so uh, Boot Hill was actually on that later system, a slightly more sophisticated system than Gunfight had been on. So it stands to reason um, that it would have been introduced at that time on this more sophisticated system uh, other than on the slightly more primitive system, though still impressive for its time, uh, that you had gunfight on. Right. That makes sense. So another early music example comes from Exidy's Circus, which is a, essentially a clone of Breakout. Um, mm. If you if you pay you know, real close attention, if you squint a little bit <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, I mean, you're throwing a guy up at balloons up at the top that move, and and then he jumps down on like a like a, teeter- a seesaw, a seesaw, yeah. or a seesaw, seesaw, yeah, teeter totter or whatever. There's a lot more grunting sound effects, but <laughs> uh, so so let's let's take a listen to that that sound yeah, real yeah. quick. Oh God, that's wow. awful. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it sounds uh, exactly what it sounds like, but it, it really was. Yeah, yeah it was pretty bad. Um, but it, it really was kind of mind blowing at the time, and you know, a lot of this early audio. I mean, they were basically just poking around chips, poking around sync generators, and seeing what kind of strange noises came out of it when they poked at it, metaphorically speaking. And, and that's how they were building sounds in this, these very early games. And I imagine it was helpful that the CPU was starting to take on some of the load of creating the ga- of uh, driving the game, uh, because I don't think it's a coincidence that you don't start seeing sounds more impressive than just like white noise, background engine noise, or the plonks of Pong until you get some of these microprocessor games like Boot Hill and like Circus, where they're like, okay, we can do a little more now. Our hardware is a little more sophisticated. Let's play and let's see what else we can add to these games. And one of the things that naturally came to mind, I think, was was just music. Totally, totally. And so that was 77, which would have been about the same year as Boot Hill, probably roughly yeah, around the same I time. Boot Hill, too. it says, I, I got April. Yeah. And I, I want to thank, again, Ethan, for going back and fixing some of these dates, because I think I had them slightly incorrect. Internet well, there, is, it's, it's, it's all hard. over the place. Yeah. And uh, Circus was in November, so it's it's already mm-hmm. a little bit more sophisticated of a game, too. Yeah. And that's only, what, five, six months? Yep, yep. So mm-hmm. absolutely. If, if we look at 1978, a year later... YMO, Yellow Magic Orchestra, they released a single called Computer Game, which samples from both of those games, Boot Hill and <laughs> Circus. Yeah, they have a couple versions of that tune. I think one of them is called The Theme from Circus. I forget what the other one was called, but... Uh... Yeah. And we, Gene and I were are wondering if they actually sampled the, uh, the game or if they just recreated the sounds themselves because... Um, you know, it would have been like an analog sound, so I, I wonder how they, they right. did that, but... Well, you know, I think for me, the the biggest takeaway, the reason why I wanted to bring them up is, uh, I think in 1978, people probably still thought video games were very much a novelty and to have, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a genre bounds pushing group like Yellow Magic Orchestra to commit this to a song gives a, a bit of legitimacy. And I think they're probably the first band that really was experimenting, not just with electronic music, because that was not new, but video game right. music as a source of legitimate creative force. I mean, I 
<laughs> well, you don't think right. the, the Pac-Man rap was... Hey, that was a few years later, actually. <laughs> oh, yeah, not there true. yet. <laughs> and, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that this happened in 1978 in Japan. Now, I I don't know uh, the, the history of YMO's um, association with video games. I mean, I, I know the tracks they did that sampled, but just in terms of how they got into that. But I will say that at the beginning of 1978 was a period of time when Japan had just had its first period of video game mania, which was actually based around Breakout. Uh, Breakout hit Japan in 1976, uh, kind of in the middle of the year. But then in 1977, it was cloned by Taito. It had been released by Namco, who was Atari's official distributor. And... They did it in a tabletop version because uh, Taito was facing a crisis in coffee houses, tea houses, bars, lounges, in that they were heavily, heavily in the jukebox business. And in this period of time, you not only had piped-in music coming into vogue, but in Japan specifically, you had karaoke coming into vogue. And so the the jukebox business was uh, entering a, a steep decline, as it was worldwide. The U.S. was uh, the jukebox business was very bad in this period as well. So Taito came up with the idea of putting video games in a tabletop or TT cabinet, as they called them, that you could put into a coffee house or into a lounge in order to uh, attract people to play video games, which of course Taito was also getting involved in. Also, cocktail and, cabinet or. Exactly. So, yeah, and we won't get on a huge tangent uh, so we can keep focused, but (laughs) there had been cocktail cabinets in the U.S. a couple of years before that. That was kind of a brief ad and then collapsed and never really caught on in Japan. So now in Japan, a couple of years later, they're hitting on some of the same ideas that some American companies had tried during the Pong boom. But unlike in the U.S. where it was kind of uh, a fad for a second and then collapsed, this TT concept or tabletop concept became really huge in Japan, and you had lots of coffee and tea houses, snack bars, and even some lounges uh, replacing some of their regular tables with these video games. Uh, So starting in the middle of 1977 and continuing on uh, into early 1978, Breakout and Breakout clones became immensely popular in Japan, and so did Circus, uh, which was licensed, uh, I believe, by Taito and released as well. Circus was that big over there. It was. It, it was big, actually, in the U.S. and Japan. Um, it sold probably, we never have reliable figures, but it probably sold around 7,000 units. Uh, and that's just uh, with Exidy in the U.S. That doesn't even count Japanese sales. I don't know what Japanese sales were hmm. from Taito. Uh, it was actually uh, one of the biggest hits of 1977-78. And... Uh, I think a lot of that was the audiovisual presentation. Uh, probably not as much the audio, mm-hmm. but the the little stick figures in it have absolutely intricate animations for that time period. They look oh, simplistic absolutely. today, but it was it was amazing, and so that was a big hit. And it took Japan by storm right at a period of time when Japan was really awakening to this whole video game thing. Obviously, Space Invaders, just a little later, was way bigger than Breakout could ever hope to be. But if you look at most of the major Japanese video game companies that uh, had not already been involved in video games, companies like SNK, Konami, Data East, Irem, all of them, the first video game they released was a breakout clone yeah. <laughs> because they were just they were huge yeah and so i think that timing i don't think it's an accident that ymo would be discovering this stuff in 1978 because 
it's it's really taking over in Japan at that time, even before Space Invaders. Well, right? that's actually a good seg because you mentioned not only the first video game craze being breakout clones and Space Invaders being bigger, but that is really the next. I mean, it was a huge leap in terms of the success of arcades. So, oh, I mean, undoubtedly. yeah, you talk about this at great length. But in July of 1978, Space Invaders releases and it is a smash. It, right. it, it's everywhere. Developed by Taito, published by Midway. It took Japan by storm. And, and then the U.S. <laughs> yeah, we have a little clip here we can play. Yeah. I mean, everybody's heard this, but I mean, let's go ahead and listen to this for a sec. And, uh, of course, what that clip doesn't quite show is that, of course, it also gets faster, faster and faster, faster right. as the aliens get closer and closer. Dun, dun. Now, if I if I remember correctly from our Library of Congress talk, that was actually a programming bug, right? That they I think initially to... it was, yeah, and they found that it was so much more engaging as a gameplay yes. flow mechanic that they, that kept they it just in. kept it in. Yeah. So what it was is what happened. Uh, just again, really briefly, is he had wanted to move all the aliens as a block. The idea was that there was this monolithic group coming at you. Well, with the limit limitations of the hardware of the time, he couldn't move them as a block, so he had to move them um, in individual lines just really quickly. Um, but moving that many objects kind of in succession like that also really wore on the hardware. So it was very slow at the start, but then it's just sped up naturally uh, as processing cycles were freed up uh, by fewer objects on the screen. And when he saw that and realized that, he was like, okay, let's let's do that. Let's keep that. Uh, because it's exciting, and then of course the music, which was done much later, was was made to to sync up with that effect. Awesome, awesome. The following year in 1979, Atari releases. Oh, so so before, sorry. Hold uh, on. We, oh, yeah. we before we get to that, I'll say one more thing. Of, uh, yeah. Okay, 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 yeah. okay. Sorry, <laughs> oh, I'm no, I, I just wanted to say one one other <laughs> thing uh, about that. You know, the thing that set the music apart here, Circus and Boot Hill, they had little interludes. I doubt the hardware. The hardware would have probably even struggled to keep music going while everything else was going on the screen because it's very primitive hardware. So they just they stuck it in intermissions when nothing else was happening, exactly. essentially. Space Invaders was designed to be integrated into the game. It was a background track, as much as you can call four notes a track. And it was a deliberate part of inducing tension. Um, Nishikado, Tomohiro Nishikado, who created the game, told the sound designer to base what he was doing on Jaws. He wanted that sense <laughs> of being hunted and something coming closer. You're reading and, our mind. <laughs> yeah, and it's, and it's deliberate. I mean, that was their actual inspiration was Jaws. And so this is the first time that we not only see music occurring during gameplay, but music used deliberately as a mood setter in a video game and as a deliberate way to ratchet up the adrenaline, ratchet up the tension, ratchet up the interest of the player in the game. So we're seeing music as integral. Space Invaders is nowhere near the same without that backing track, I don't exactly, think. Exactly, exactly. We talked about that very much in the, the Library of Congress talk too, that uh, just, it, it added so much to the game that hadn't been really done before to give you that sense of um like music like almost like a movie like a feature film where you're getting um you know a backing track that's really making it more intense and uh we didn't really see that happen before so 
uh, was just you know an incredible feat. I think this it was a flashpoint in games. Like I, I, mm-hmm. I honestly like it's hard for me to appreciate it because this was even before I was born. But like, I would say Space Invaders probably changed the course of games altogether. I, mean, I think oh, so. absolutely. Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree. So the following year, are you guys good on Space Invaders? <laughs> absolutely. All right. Yeah. So the following year, in 1979, Atari releases Asteroids, which was also a huge hit. And it takes the concept of accelerating background music from Space Invaders, but in a 360-degree shooting game against Asteroids. This game was a... Uh, oh, I, I loved this game. I played the, played the heck out of this. And probably every <laughs> incarnation of it uh, that came out later. We have a little clip here from Asteroids... Um, <laughs> developed by Atari, published by Taito and Atari, depending on the region. But let's take a listen yeah. to that. You guys want like five more minutes? I think we're good. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's Jaws pretty literally right there, isn't yeah. it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, to a degree. Uh, and the sound effects really sound a lot more clear and really more pronounced than even Space Invaders. I was, I'm was. i glad you brought that up because I was going to mention that too, that just that like pew pew noise has so like such a good tone to it. It's it's very clean. It's very clear. And if you if you yeah. ever get a chance to play this on the original vector monitor, it looks beautiful. That's that's how I first played it, and I I, I yeah. remember it like. And they still have some vector mon- uh, some vector machines that still work because the the um, the lifespan in those is actually a lot longer than most CRTs. So yeah, um, I mean, it's mm-hmm. just drawing it onto the screen directly, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. So. Yes. Right, so you know, with with a standard raster scan display, uh, you start at the your CRT starts at the top left and then draws rapidly across all the way to the bottom right, line after line after line, uh, sixty frames a second in the U.S. And uh, with vector, you're pointing the gun directly at a point and giving it a vector, and then it just keeps continually drawing in that direction until you give it another vector, and then it moves, and so it creates those uh, those shapes. And uh, yeah, we, we did a vector arcade game episode, and, and one of the things that we said that you don't understand if you're just watching an emulator, or even oftentimes if you're watching a, a YouTube video of a machine as opposed to seeing it in person, those things glow. They, they are bright. Yes, they, they bright. can be a bit hard on the eyes, even in a dark room. So yeah. I, I want to move on now to another game from 1979. Uh, this one's from the arcade game Sheriff. It's around the same time as uh, as Asteroids. This one is by a little-known company called Nintendo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at least in 1979. We'll never hear from them again. Yeah, yeah never, never heard from them again. <laughs> The one hit wonders. I think we're good. Right. And, you know, I, I believe, you know, again, that clip doesn't capture it, but I believe the sheriff music gets faster over time as well. So um, if there's one thing that kind of ties together these these three, uh, they sound similar in a way. And it's because they, they've hit on this idea of of music as tension builder. You have objects coming right for you. 
it's already an intense experience and the music makes it that much more intense. And what you do have to understand is this was a real paradigm shift in, in video games altogether. Earlier arcade games, uh, video games, they were shooting galleries where you just shot as many things as you could in a time limit and they didn't shoot back at you. They were driving games, which could be kind of intense, but they were still, they were time limit based games. Just do what you can in the time limit. These were games where you were placed in mortal peril, where you were being given three lives and you got game over after that. Earlier games had been tuned to give you 90 seconds of play, you know, through right. time limits or something. These games, you could be dead in five seconds because uh, the first time you play, you're no good. So there was a shift to games of massive tension and massive peril. And we see the music coming in at the same time to enhance that idea of tension and peril. It's it's all really working in tandem in an interesting way. And to go along with that, you know, games progressively get harder, whereas the yeah. original ones um, that you're talking about with the 90 second limit, that's all just completely based on skill. And it doesn't have a there's no progression as far as the difficulty mm-hmm. goes no matter how many times you play, it's always the same round over and over. There's no concept of the high score culture or anything right. like that. Right, so yeah. I, I, yes. I, I'm curious here, and this, this is probably something we just have to you know, ponder about, but uh, as the um, level gets m- more difficult, do you think that the music, that building that tension based on the difficulty was just seemed to go hand in hand? Like, they didn't think at the time okay, the game is harder. Should we just have different music? No, we should actually just make it faster, just like the game. So right. it, it right. seems like it was almost, it's it's almost black and white, right? So it's not really like, oh, the game has a shift. We should you know shift the audio here. It's that everything's getting progressively harder. That means the music is also getting progressively harder in a sense. Well, of, from a yeah. programmatic way, that seems probably the easiest way to do the it. The easiest, right? <laughs> but, you know. Exactly. And it also makes sense from an amount of RAM standpoint. You only have so much RAM in order to store a note. So if you're playing it faster and just using the same assets, that's very prevalent in any kind of video game where you only use, you reuse assets constantly in order to make the game. Mm -hmm. One last quick thing about Sheriff. Uh, The music does feel very Western themed. So we're starting to get music that sounds like it fits the game that it's playing in and not just like arbitrary. So, hey, an improvement. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So um, moving on into June of 1980, we get Targ. And this is actually not a game that I'm all that familiar with, but it's also developed by Exidy. It's kind of a strange one. It's a single screen racing game, sort of on a grid. You run around obstacles. You can shoot at cars. Uh, Just uh, something I didn't mention in the last one. Exidy is the same developer that made well circus but they also made uh death race which was somewhat yes. of a controversial game in 1976 because you were driving over people in your car i've so yeah. so just just to be clear you you were driving over monsters uh and this was not just an after the fact them trying to save themselves from the negative publicity but with with the graphics being so primitive people that saw that game saw those stick figures as people and then you know things got out ah, of control that, that i didn't know but there was a lot of uh finger wagging about video games in the early days if i remember oh sure oh sure so let's play a little clip from targ <laughs> yeah. <laughs> from targ actually 1980 yeah june of 1980 Well, that was awful. Well, <laughs> what you can't hear is that actually is synced again, like the previous games, to the speed of the car you're traveling in. Yes. Which is a little bit right. different because it's not the game speeding up. It's literally your car. You speed up and slow down well, at a, your own pace. It was a car. I thought it was a tank. 
Oh, okay. that does, well, does it really matter? Yeah, no, yeah. nope. <laughs> it's like four blocks. Yeah, it, it it is a blob made up of what can generously be called giant pixels. There you go. <laughs> we'll go with that. Yeah, no, it's yeah, it's true. I mean, it's 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 all kind of the same theme, and you actually see this in pinball as well, which uh, you know we won't be covering here, but the game Flash. Uh, from Williams also came out in this time period and had a background hum as well. It's like after Space Invaders, it's almost like Space Invaders opened everybody's eyes to how audio could enhance a video game experience. And you get all of these games just kind of picking up on that, even if it's still very, very primitive, often discrete circuits or basic uh, digital analog converters that are driving, you know, a lot of this uh, early sound and music. Right. So... Earlier, you mentioned cutscenes or the uh, the intermission area as being a kind of prominent area for music to be played. In 1980, in July, Namco released Pac-Man, um, and there's uh, a few different cutscenes actually have some jingles to them, if you will. So this is also the opening sound that everybody knows yeah. and loves. Yeah. Waka waka waka. <laughs> and then the cutscene sound. It's a little hard on the ears, but basic polyphony at that time is actually pretty impressive. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. They actually really start to sound like distinct notes at this it's time. It's like, it's music. <laughs> it's actual yeah, music. And- Right. And, you know, Namco was very out in front of the on this. And I wish I knew the full history of that. I mean, in Pac-Man um, and uh, in Rally X, which we're going to get to, uh, Toshio Kai was the guy that was really behind uh, getting music going in those games. And unfortunately, the language barrier, uh, lack of translated interviews, uh, unlike some of the other people we'll be seeing in a little bit, I don't really know anything about how he got his start on the audio end of things. But clearly, he's driving something a little more interesting. And Namco is is using a, a custom waveform sound generator, which was a real secret behind a lot of their arcade games sounding so much better than everyone else's because you're still talking about using very basic waves, finding a, a square wave that looks good, uh, that sounds good, I mean, or and you know manipulating it until you get exactly right. But that that's a level of sophistication above uh, what a lot of other companies were doing this period, and it just shows in their music. And Namco is so influential on early video game music, particularly in Japan. Yeah, you know, they seem to be the first company that I found, and I know I have less information, ironically, about the American companies, but they seem to be the, one of the first that not only put real effort and energy into their composition team or their sound team as, as you know, as, as a dedicated specialization, but also reusing their hardware, like the game hardware. That's, they were yes, not the only right. ones, but they really made heavy use of, they made a, like a framework, and this one was called the Namco Pac-Man. It wasn't just used for Pac-Man, it was used for like, But I think, yeah. But I think Namco had a one-up over a lot of other companies, too, because they had so much background in the entertainment industry prior to the video game um, era. And so I I think they they kind of foresaw, and you guys could correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they foresaw Mm -hmm. a lot of things that worked for, you know, um, production of, you know, creating like chips or um, creating integrated yeah. streamlining some of yeah. the process. And I think that just having that business back end already under their belt is uh, a huge factor that made them as successful as they were in the, especially in the eighties. 
Yeah, absolutely. And you know, another thing about them is is their founder and owner, Masaya Nakamura. Um, unlike some of these other companies, obviously, all the companies employed very brilliant game designers. Nakamura was an engineer. Now he his degree was in shipbuilding engineering. We're not talking about an electrical engineer, but he was an engineer. He was a technical guy first, businessman second, and he was legitimately very interested in these games in a way that a lot of the other businessmen like a Hiroshi Amuchi at Nintendo or a Michael Kogan at Taito weren't. And I think that's got to play a role in how things developed as well, because he cultivated a team that was very in tune to play and fun and technical advancement. And while you can say, you know, well, so were all the others, that's true to an extent. But even if you have a business goal to do that, I think when you yourself are very passionate about it, it, it shines through even more. And, you know, just to very briefly say how influential they were, a lot of people don't realize this, but, you know, if you look at the games Pac-Land, Tower of Druaga, and uh, Baraduk, I think it is, those those games were basically copied by Nintendo and turned into Super Mario Brothers, Legend of Zelda, and Metroid. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Good point. Uh, you know, not one for one, and that's not to diminish uh, Shigeru Miyamoto's brilliance at all, um, because he's certainly also a brilliant game designer. But I'm just saying that just goes to show what an influence Namco was having across the industry. They come up a lot in the rest of the show, and I think that's a great point. And uh, one of these things that you know, having worked in industry for so many years myself now, you really know the difference when your company supports you from the top or when they just say they do. And I can imagine being in a company like Namco, where you have the full support of the CEO, you are given full creative license to make these games and you give blessing. It's not just here's money, do something. If it makes money, great. I don't care. There are some companies that have that philosophy, especially early on. Even some of the early game companies, like if there was another opportunity to make more money, they would have pivoted from game development a hundred percent just look, to look you know, at konami today. right yeah, i know look at konami. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly no yeah konami's a great it's example a of that example of that so let's move on to our next one yes so in 81 july of 81 we have a track here from wizard of war by Dave, dave nutting associates released in the arcades and uses some amusing voice synthesis to lure in those quarters uh the game is designed by tom McHugh and dave nutting let's take a listen to wizard of war hey hey sir how could you say no to a voice like that? I know. All right, now you're going to have nightmares forever. And <laughs> well, I certainly am one to bow before our new robot overlords. <laughs> That's the most exactly. menacing quarter muncher I've ever heard, next to probably Sinistar. <laughs> well, and you know, Ber- Berserk is another good example, of course, from the same time period as well uh, that came out the year before. And we talked you know, about when that these before. Are- yeah. Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, we talked about that before on another show. Uh, we talked yeah. about the voice synthesis, and that it was great. Yeah. And, you know, these these early voice chips were very primitive and very uh, memory limited, which is why no matter what you tried to record in them, it came out very robotic, which ended up being perfect for video games, right? Because robotic antagonists are really a kind of perfect thing. And, uh, you know, in the case of Wizard of War, uh, particularly one of the main influences on that game was the movie Alien. 
And so in those kind of dong, dong, dong yeah. stuff going on in the background there, that that evokes some of the same kind of um, that the movie Alien did like in, that in 1979. You know, it does uh-huh, remind me exactly. of does remind me of Metroid a lot too. This yeah, game, this game. Mm-hmm. that's a funny. Uh, keep it coming. I love hearing all this stuff. Which, just... <laughs> yeah, and, and of course, Alien was was a significant uh, influence on Metroid as well. Yeah, so and and just video games in the industry in general, like it was huge. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, So in Uh, 1980, uh, you want to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in 1980, you know, we've already had some music and background sounds. We're actually going to play two examples back to back. First from Namco's Rally X, composed by Toshio Kai, and then another one from New Rally X, composed by Nobuyuki Anogi. Yeah, and that was just a year later in 81. So let's take a listen to Rally X and New Rally X. That's awesome. All right, and here's New Relics. actually starting to actually well be music and then also yeah. also more than like a second of audio so and it also sounds like it has two voices for the soundtrack you have two separate lines of beats merging together exactly oh yeah exactly. you got a bass and a melody i i, I want to really quickly say you mentioned that they came out a year apart but really we're talking a few months the first rally oh, yeah, came point, out right. at the end of 80 no and this is you know this early on this kind of thing is important like Maybe the, f- the first version was sort of a proof of concept, but th- they thought it was important enough that they have a much more robust sound system with better music, so they re-released it, and for all intents and purposes, New Rally X is basically the same game. There's a few right. minor gameplay modifications, but the soundtrack is probably the biggest change. Exactly. And yeah, back to what you were saying, too. Uh, you know, a few months apart is actually like nothing. You know, like that's why sometimes it's really hard to distinguish because you're looking at some of these dates and you're like, oh, that was 1980. And look at the big jump in 1981 here. But it's like <laughs> one is 19, like 80 November and and one is, you know, January of 81. That, that was like not much time. There's some significant leaps that are going on in this time True, period. But four months in the arcade in those days was probably an eternity, like in terms of profitability. Fair. Fair. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, th- this is a period of time when profitability of games is beginning to shrink, which was a big cause of the uh, slowdown in coin-op, which is separate from the big, uh, what people consider the video game crash with Atari and everything, which was uh, consumer. But you had uh, hit games lasting for less and less time. Like Space Invaders was a big hit for like two years, not even an exaggeration. Asteroids was a big hit for one year. Then it starts to get six months. Then it starts to get three months. Then it starts to get two months. Then the whole thing crashes because you can't keep releasing a new expensive game that's obsolete and one or two months. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the rate of uh, innovation here is very fast, uh, both because uh, it's a hits-driven industry and you have to keep topping yourself, and because, of course, Moore's Law is always lurking in the background. You know, everything is doubling every 18 months. So, 
um, you know, put those two things together and you see things develop very quickly. And, you know, Namco, as we were saying just a second ago, is really the first company that's experimenting with this. And um, from what few interviews we have uh, in English uh, from, uh, for instance, Nobuyuki Onogi, who is often considered one of the fathers of video game music in Japan, is that, you know, they were not hired as sound designers or musicians uh, because that was a discipline that didn't exist yet. But they were encouraged when it came to sounds to do whatever they wanted and to kind of push boundaries. And I think it goes back again to that kind of Namco uh, freedom of creativity and fun and play being a driver of uh, bringing the music forward as well, because they were uh, given such free reign here. And, you know, it's it's interesting. You know, we haven't brought this up yet, but it's worth uh, mentioning as we get into some of the more sophisticated Japanese stuff and then the how it mixes in with what's going on in electronic music is that building a sound system for a video game in in these early games is not unlike constructing a synthesizer hmm. because you are basically taking circuits and uh, putting together circuits in a way that allows you to generate waveforms and then playing around with the waveforms until you get the sound you want and then using that waveform or that set of waveforms to create your music. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. You know, it, yeah, it's so it's it's the same kind of experimentation that early groups that were early prog groups and early electronic groups that were into uh, synthesizers heavily like a yellow magic orchestra and Emerson Lake and Palmer are doing the exact same kind of thing as some of these early guys are just in a different medium and with a different ultimate goal. But it's, it's very similar. So there, it makes sense that there was overlap starting to occur uh, between what people were doing in video games and what groups like Yellow Magic Orchestra were doing in their music, uh, because it it it's kind of all connected in that way. And as the video game music got more sophisticated, groups like Yellow Magic Orchestra uh, or the Pretenders, uh, which also did sampling of video game music, clearly recognized some of this sophistication and were were bringing it forward uh, in their own music from time to time. Yeah, that's a fair point. We're not even really at the era where we have dedicated chips yet. I mean, occasionally you'll have stuff like uh, Namco's starting to have that, but yep. there is a spirit of experimentation that's required to be involved in games way more than probably, you know, even just a few years down the road. You have to pretty much be an engineering mindset to get something useful out of this hardware or build it yourself. Right. Exactly. And I think that concurrently they were trying to figure out video oh yeah and other stuff that you know just the logic and, and and memory requirements and all that stuff concurrently so i think that there was just you know there was i think we're very fortunate they put so much effort into audio as they did everything else and namco especially driving or leading the the, the force here and so um it's an interesting time that uh could have been easily overshadowed if they spent more more of their resources just on the design, the graphics, the video department. So let's move on to Absolutely. let's move on to our next example. This is from Venture. So I again, I'm really not that familiar with Exidy's output, and it is um, it, it is thanks to Ethan that we had a lot of this in here. But I I, I wanted to bring this one up because they're an early arcade developer that we really don't hear about anymore, and. They, mm -hmm. they, I think they shuttered probably in the early 80s, but it's really interesting to go back and listen to some of this stuff and yeah. hear that they were doing the same kinds of things. We can very easily say, oh, it was the Japanese developers who were doing this, but American companies were doing the same kinds of things. They just weren't quite as successful in having that 
longevity that some of the Japanese devs were. Right. So right. let's take a listen to this track from Venture. This is composed by Ed Anderson, and this was released in August of 81. Was happening during gameplay though, so you had you know a mixture of sound effects. This is this is an interesting one. I was right. I was watching clips of it. It's, um, it's music actually really rad. Yeah, I like that. And you it's have multiple simple, but... screen types. Like you go into these smaller rooms that then expand to the full size of the screen. So there's a I don't know exactly what you call that, but essentially changing the hotline theme. Miami. I don't know. No, <laughs> no. I mean, I mean, like a lot of games up to this point were single screen. You yes, just have like a yeah. giant grid and you play on it and then between levels it'll change this is in between areas you're switching to a new kind of gameplay style i guess right yeah and it was you know it was entirely drawn from dungeons and dragons uh how ivy the designer and some of the other uh, people at exidy were were getting into dungeons and dragons and so wanted to recreate that as best they could in a uh, coin-op situation which of course always has to emphasize fast action over anything else but yeah, that's kind of where that comes from. Uh, to go to your point, because you had mentioned, of course, just a second ago about how the American stuff was was often lagging behind the Japanese. And I really, while I don't know this for sure, I really think that has a lot to do with the fact that the Japanese moved into specialized roles, specialization, much earlier than American companies did. So in American companies, you tended to have a single programmer on a game, maybe two programmers on a game that were responsible for doing the entirety of the game design and the game implementation. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Japan, you were already seeing a, a break between uh, having designers that just design games, uh, artists doing art, programmers doing the general programming and sound programmers doing the sound programming like actual functional roles yeah and point. exactly I, I have it in my notes but i didn't say this uh shigeru miyamoto worked on sheriff as an artist as a graphic artist <laughs> right no, exactly yeah and uh, you know pac-man uh, tori watani was not a programmer he just designed the game and then he had a programmer plus he had toshia kai doing sound and i think because they broke off that sound element so early well the, the sound guy is going to be somebody that probably isn't just going to want to do bleeps and bloops all day long the sound guy has an impetus to be more creative with sound and try to get into the the music and and whatnot as well. Uh, and at this time, you needed to be a programmer to do video game music because you couldn't just plug your synthesizer into your development system, plunk a few notes on your your Yamaha keyboard synthesizer or whatever, and have that be automatically translated into something that the computer could understand. You actually had to program every one of those notes. You had to program the, the pitch, the intensity, the duration, one by one. So a composer couldn't just be a sound person or a musician in video games at that time. Obviously, mm -hmm. that changes later. Um, and so you had to have that skill and it was time consuming. So if you are an American programmer who is responsible for everything, not just the sound, but also programming the graphics and programming the gameplay and all of that, you don't necessarily have the same amount of time to devote to 
getting very interesting and very good music into the game, whereas the Japanese split that off. I wanted to add a really, really quick thing that will never have a a chance to come up in any other show, pretty much. I did a research project many years ago about game design roles. Music and sound was the one role that all programmers felt they were weakest in. Like, we we took a survey. Pretty much everybody felt confident doing just about everything, but I think only about 30 or 40% felt confident doing music and sound. So... That does have an impact. Even that, that was only a few years ago when I did that survey. So right. even today with the tools and the middleware and all of the things that made it easy to make music, people still feel like they need specialists. Anyway. Yeah, no, that, <laughs> no that, that's a great point. And, and, you know, and the Japanese were providing those specialists, generally speaking, before American companies were. There are exceptions here and there, but as, as a general rule. Right. All right. So in October of 1981, we talked about this on a previous episode, but the game Snafu was released on the Mattel in television. And this had music by the late Russell Lieblick. He's actually one of the first names that comes up as like a notable game music composer. And he, he's very mm-hmm. early, very interested in, in, you know, experimentation. And he does stuff later in his life. But uh, we'll just play a little quick clip from that and then we'll, we'll move on. <laughs> Now, this one has a kind of near and dear place to my heart. I had an Intellivision with Snafu, Burger Time, <laughs> yeah. and and uh, I think Shark Shark or something. Like, <laughs> I, had, I had a few, um, and, and Utopia, I think, too, was another one. Yeah. Um, but th- I played this game a ton. I loved, yep. I loved Snafu. Yeah, and I mean, just listening to that snare drum, I mean, it's just, that's, <laughs> that's pretty impressive for 1981. Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. So we're getting into 1982 now. This is where a lot of things are starting to happen. So I wrote a note here. So this is kind of the beginning of what you refer to as the crash. And I know I've listened to you talk a lot about it. And it's a lot more nuanced than people generally want to admit. And uh, I I guess if if you could summarize it as quickly as possible as a reason to listen to your show, what are the one or two (laughs) biggest things that people get wrong about the game video game crash of 82? Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, we, we did three whole episodes on the crash. Uh, so there, I could obviously go on about this literally for hours. But uh, there are a couple of things that people don't understand. First of all is that at this time there was not a unified video game industry. So it just so happens that the coin-op space and the console space ran into difficulty at roughly the same period of time. But they're actually different markets on different cycles. It's not one giant crash. Coin-op started slowing in the middle of 1982, bottomed out in 1984. By 1985, coin-op was humming again. Video game, uh, console games didn't really start to crash until late 1982, got really bad in 83, 84, 85, and it really wasn't until 86 that they were starting to write the ship. So that's one thing that people uh, do is they conflate what was going on in those two areas. Uh, The other thing is that people put too much emphasis on bad games being the problem. And of course, E.T. is the poster child. But I'm not just talking about E.T. I'm talking about some of the third parties that released just really shoddily programmed stuff as well. And while it's true that some bad games were released, the thing that really caused the crash, and even though we spent three episodes talking for hours on it, you can really distill it down to one simple thing. More product than the market could bear. 
and like a hundred percent more product than the market could bear uh, for a variety of reasons uh, because there had been shortages in the past distributors were used to over ordering to get what they wanted and then suddenly production capacity because there were now so many companies involved and because even the old line companies like Atari were increasing capacity as much as they could production finally caught up with demand but ordering had not shifted to reflect this new reality. So uh, distributors that used to order twice what they needed in order to get half what they wanted were suddenly getting twice what they needed. And that just <laughs> right. that blew the market up. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's the short version. Gotcha. So moving, moving along, just uh, <laughs> yeah, we want to keep you guys from listening to a four-hour show. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So from a music perspective... Things really started to pick up around 82. And we, we kind of talked about that, hinted at that at the beginning of the show. A lot of stuff we've heard now is pretty... Rudimentary. Yes, pretty simple. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean it was simple to make, but it, it was pretty simple sounding. And so I, I think really where we pick up is in June of 1982, we have a game called Moon Patrol that was released by Irem, composed by Ichiro Takagi. And I, I mean, everybody knows. It, it's Yeah. It's pretty uh, it's a similar. driving and shooting yeah. game it takes place on you know the moon yeah <laughs> let's let's take a listen real quick <laughs> brought back a lot of memories there for me yeah that's (laughs) actually one of my favorite arcade games that's one of mine too i i and i developed a love for that game fairly late like after my like childhood playing games you know when the retro thing was back for the barcades i i just like really got into it i don't know whenever i see a moon patrol cabinet anywhere i immediately have to go play it like i can't just i think the music is part of it oh yeah totally yeah totally no absolutely and you know there's a couple of things i think are worth pointing out just at this point that that apply here um to what we've seen so far um first of all you can see the Namco influence because Namco kind of pioneered this idea of doing this really bouncy kind of bass-driven bass is in a bass guitar, not as in bass, uh, <laughs> driven kind of sound. Uh, and so this this Irem game, you know, this is from Irem, but if you had told me it was another in a line of Namco games, I'd believe it just by uh, the progression of that tune, which is very similar to what Namco was doing. Right. So you can see how that's starting to spread. The other thing is, well, why is everything bouncy like this? Um, and, and the reason for that is quite simply because of the limitations of the hardware, because you're talking most of these systems were using uh, three-channel, maybe if you were really lucky, four-channel audio, and you were having to use those channels not just for your music, but also for your sound Sound effects. effects, You had to figure out when you were doing your music in relation to when you were doing the sound effects to make sure they weren't uh, stepping on each other. So you couldn't do chords, really, you could have an occasional chord, but you couldn't do very heavy chord-driven music. So, and, and the Japanese market wasn't into the arpeggio that we heard a lot of the, the time. European in, in, side, in yeah. the European side. And so, yep. and, and, and you know, going to your point too, like using the AY chip for 90% or almost all of these arcades at this point that have gotten to this level with a dedicated sound chip, you know, mm-hmm. you had the, the noise channel, you had a tone channel, and then you had to have yep. something left 
you you had to have at least two channels left, one for whatever note, and then for uh, sound effects, and that that was required. So like for Moon Patrol, the example is like exactly in the line with what you're saying is, you know, we had the that that white noise, we had that dun 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 dun, dun and then we had the uh, the, the kind mm-hmm. of melody floating around on top of it, but then sound effects had to play. So we we really right. didn't get. You know, you, you think of the AY chip and you think, oh, man, there's, there, you know, we got three tones and a white noise generator. It's kind of but funny. I it's, think it, you, but it's actually less than you think. I think way. you invented right. a third channel there because it really is just the bass line and the drums. Uh, you, you, yeah. 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 Well, I mean. <laughs> but no, like, that's what I'm saying. Like the music works in a way that it makes you feel like there's more going on than there is. And there was no sound effects. So that's just effective composition. Well, there was, no sound, exactly. there was no sound effects in that clip. Sure. Sure. Yeah. sure. Yeah. And, and it's kind of interesting because a lot of the early Japanese composers were very much um, their interest in music was cultivated uh, by you know, prog rock groups and uh, early electronic music groups, groups like Yes and Emerson, Lake and Palmer, and of course their own domestic Yellow Magic Orchestra. But you don't really see a lot of those audio influences in the early music itself because that kind of music is far more complex in its tonality and far more complex in its chord structure. Uh, You know, rock and roll was very popular uh, in Japan in this time period, but rock is very chord heavy, chord intensive. So that really doesn't translate well to the sound hardware that they have available at the time. Whereas something a little jazzier, you know, with that kind of driving bass guitar or string bass, like you would find in a jazz quartet or jazz trio really fits the hardware. Well, you know, counterpoint to that. We have two examples coming up that start stealing from pop music again, or electronic pop music. The first one here is uh, Pango in September of 1982 developed by band Presto or Coraland at the time and published by Sega. It uses an arranged version of Gershon Kingsley's popcorn, probably the hot butter version that came out in like 71 or so. Uh, This is probably the one people are more familiar with, so let's play the clip. crazy to think that an instrumental would have been a huge hit in the early 70s nowadays that probably would never happen again but (laughs) (laughs) maybe maybe in the supermarket but anyway they actually ended up releasing a second version of the game with original song which isn't quite as good but uh, you want to hear that real quick sure why not why not Okay. <laughs> it's, it's a fun it's, tune, it's but cool. you know, it's like not it. leaning on the pop culture quite as much. So the the next example is uh, from Super Locomotive. I've been trying to get this one onto the show for some time now. <laughs> <laughs> this one's great. Let's take a listen. This, this is the whole reason he had us on, is just so we would have an excuse <laughs> to play this. <laughs> All boils down so, to <laughs> Super Locomotive, developed and published by Sega in uh, December of 1982. It's using a cover of Yellow Magic Orchestra's Riding, and it's probably the best early adaptation I've heard of this tune. Let's take a listen.
pure theft. But, but it's, yeah, it's really good. It's a really, really great rendition. If you watch a video of it, I don't Absolutely. think I don't think they have sound effects specifically because they thought it was that much more important to use the sound channels for music. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, and as as we said before, you know that that arpeggiated stuff it it really works well when you just have a couple of channels. I mean, we'll get into some stuff uh, slightly a little bit later that takes a more classical bent, and there's it's no accident too that the the more classical music. Uh, even our our piece at the top of the hour was very baroque music because, of course, baroque music was all about arpeggiated stuff and was about non-sustained stuff. Staying away from sustained chords is was really something you had to do in this early video game music because your hardware you didn't just have could not choice. do that. <laughs> yeah, you didn't have a yeah. choice. Yeah. How many times have we heard composers say we have three notes? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and and so you get jazzy bass beats, you get uh, electronica, and uh, you, if you're going on a more uh, classical bent, you get Baroque, <laughs> and yep. that's what you get. That's what you get. So uh, let's move ahead here to February, March of 83, Xevious. We, we've talked about Xevious before uh, on the show. Did we play? We didn't play any music from it. We didn't it. play no. it. Okay. And this was composed by Yuriko uh, Kano, and uh, it's, a, it's really great. This is I, I really like this this track. I really like that that intro. Yeah, there. I mean, it's just it's also nostalgic for me. So, absolutely. And by this point in Namco, you know, as I said, uh, Nobuyuki Onogi, who who didn't create this, obviously, but is considered uh, in Japan to be kind of the father of video game music, and that's because after he did his first few songs. Uh, his first few games where he was starting to get more and more in the music, he started overseeing a team of people that were dedicated to doing music. So you just didn't have like one or two people in the company dedicated to music. You had a, a whole department of four or five or, or something like that uh, with Onogi. I don't know if he was like literally their boss, but at, at the very least, he was spiritually their leader. And so you have a group that has a custom hardware built by their company, has tools primarily, I think, built by Onogi to maximize the use of this hardware. And then you have a group of four or five people that are just being encouraged to experiment. And you can just see how Namco music is growing in sophistication very quickly just as they get a grip on the tools that they have available to them to create that music. Right. And we're going to play another example from them pretty soon. I want to make a brief sidebar here to mention March of 83 is when Gyrus releases in arcades, and we're not going to play any music from it because we did a whole episode on it, episode 116. About 10 episodes ago or so. Yeah. But this is just so you get a sense of where this slots in in relation to this early history. This is actually fairly late, all things considered. Yeah. So, and that was uh, Box Tokata and Fugue Indie Minor. Yeah, so, like, like an electronic version yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah Fugue Indie, sorry. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that that soundtrack was great. We decided to dedicate a whole episode yeah. to it. But uh, you were talking about Onogi earlier, and we have another track here that's yeah. really, really good from the same year in May uh, from a game called Mappy. And this is published by mm -hmm. uh, Midway in the US. This is a, an excellent one. Let's, let's take a quick listen to that. Thank you. 
I'm a sucker for a good melody. Oh, that's great, man. Yeah, I, love I it. mean, o- Onogi's kind of thing is he was the master of bouncy, oftentimes very jazzy melodies, and he was kind of the main influencer and main driver of that kind of music in uh, in Japan. I mean, just listening to that track, and by the way, Mappy as a game. Uh, itself maybe not so remembered today, especially in the U.S., but musically, it's huge. I mean, you can see so much of what comes after that. I mean, just change a few notes out of what we just played there, and you've got da 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 You know, it's so close. And and the other thing is, it was seeing this game that made Koichi Sujiyama of Dragon Quest fame first sit up and take notice of game music and think wait a minute, this is a medium where you can really compose something. And then, of course, he wrote uh, a fan letter because he played Enix Games. He wrote a fan letter, and they realized he was that Sujiyama because he was already a famous musician. And, of course, they collaborated uh, on soundtracks, most famously, uh, all the Dragon Quest games. But Sujiyama got into that whole video game uh, music thing because of Mappy. So this this is one of the seminal, yeah. I, I knew that second half. I did not know that first part about Mappy. So I want to bring up yep. another quick little sidebar here in July of 1983. Nintendo releases the Famicom. Now, to put it quite simply, not a whole lot happens really in 83, 84. They kind of lay dormant, so we don't really bring them up too much. But it's just kind of an interesting note that right around this time when arcades are starting to get really sophisticated, they launched the system that would pretty much reinvigorate video games and so we have a little clip from the uh the port of donkey kong which is a remake of the original from the arcades right this is actually an original tune composed by yukio kaneoka and pip tanaka Famously used in Donkey Kong Country. And actually, I don't know which of the yep. two composed that tune specifically, but like, it's sort of interesting to hear the very simple roots of the original Nintendo. So Donkey Kong is like yeah. my favorite arcade game probably of all time. And I never, almost never played the NES version. So you never hear that song. So for me, that is like yeah. Donkey Kong Country. <laughs> I know, me too. Right. Yeah, it very much sounds like that from the very beginning. Anyways, so home computer systems from 82 to 83. By the end of 82, um, getting in 83, you see a lot of development on home computers and some pretty interesting sounds coming from the consoles as well. In June of 1983, Necromancer from Synapse Software gets released for the Atari 8-bit family line. And uh, it was developed and designed by uh, programming wizard Bill Williams, who went on to make Alley Cat, uh, who we, talk- we talked we about We talked before. about Alley Cat in the yeah, library and talk, yeah. Knights of the Crystallion. Uh, let's take a quick listen here to Necromancer from Synapse Software. This is on the C64 version.
certainly hear the chords start to really take precedent there. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's such, such a great mood. I love yeah. that tune. And for such yeah, an early just, C64 tune. Yeah, yeah, you know, and honestly, the Atari version is, is equally as good, in my opinion. Let's take a listen to that real quick, just yeah. quickly. I love that version. It's, it's a wonderful song, and I've, I've always thought that yeah. it was really fascinating that, particularly with Necromancer, it's one of the early games where you actually have a music that sets the tone of the entire game that's coming ahead of you. It's almost like this foreboding sense of doom and dread. you got this lone person who's going to, you, the hero, who's going to go out and defeat this Necromancer the world is doomed, everything is falling apart, and you just get that sense from just that music on the title screen. Oh, it's so like yeah. it's 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 so like despairing. I, I, I guess I've so never played the game and I get that feeling. Yeah. And, you know, of course, you know, both of those platforms uh had very fine sound chips, and it was really the first time that uh in in both cases that a company was really starting to pay attention to the the sound chips that were in their hardware, even though in television had an off-the-shelf chip that was much better than what you could find in the VCS, Pokey and Sid were both, you know, custom-made chips by the companies. And of course, in Sid's case, I mean, it was meant to be the best synthesizer that you could realistically put into a low-cost computer. And this was kind of the beginning of really trying to to put real synthesizers in the hardware and create something i mean even though the pokey version's good too i mean you can just the way that sid sounds like an organ right. is just uh, amazing and all the sustains so much more sustain in that even uh than in the pokey version you know yeah well i mean that's you know that was there, it's kind of hard to compare the two because it, you know it the sid chip does have all the those fantastic filters that you can do with that and so it's just yes but in these early examples we don't really quite see as much of that but it is still cool to see how it's evolved because i think everybody kind of associates the c64 as this madhouse chip that's great right all all that stuff but it's kind of cool to see these really early examples absolutely all right so in august of 83 ultima 3 that track that we came in with was released for the apple II, and it uh it definitely made our ears perk up. This is why we put it in the beginning of the show. Uh, but it was um, a big time for Western, the ultimate like universe to get this really like authentic music that came out of it and set the tone for the, the game, what would shape the rest of the series. And, um, you know, ultimate, just like you were saying on um, some of the other titles that we had talked about based on D and D, this is another one that just, just falls right in suit, but gained a huge popularity outside of the U S as well. And so, um, I don't know. I mean, it was released on everything. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, how what else was coming out at the time? But this one actually, the the playlist I saw has about ten tracks, which is a pretty substantial amount of music for the time. It's an RPG. You're going to be playing it for a lot of hours. So we're starting to see these soundtracks expand not only in you know 
sophistication, but in length. So keep in mind, this is Ultima 3. The first two barely had any sound or music to speak of, and they were, relatively speaking, pretty big hits on early computers. So it just goes to show that people were understanding the the importance of music and sound everywhere, not just in arcades, but in home computers as well. You got another track here uh, you want to talk about, Gene? Uh, which one? Subrock. Oh, yes. Uh, this one, I was poking around on YouTube looking for interesting things on the ColecoVision, and I found a 1983 port of Subrock, which is a Sega arcade game from 1982. Mm-hmm. This is the pause music, so it's only in the Coleco version, and it is wild. <laughs> let's, let's take a listen. <laughs> That game throwing a temper tantrum because it's annoyed that you dare pause it. <laughs> yeah. So this went on to this went on to influence Crazy Bus. No, I'm just kidding. Oh god. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know who actually composed it, but it was adapted by Arnold Hendrick and Philip Tatarzynski uh, for the Coleco design team, uh, and with additional programming by David Wesley of 40 Interactive. I'm not sure who was responsible for that tune, but it had to be one of those guys, right? Or it was none yep. of them, and it just came just, out. <laughs> somebody wrote a program. Yeah. To, <laughs> It was all AI driven. <laughs> that was just too weird for <laughs> right. me to leave out. I, I I had to put it in there. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So let's talk about our next track here from Forbidden Force. This was released on the C sixty four November of eighty three. Moving along with the console or the the home computers, and uh, the game was designed and composed by Paul Norman. Uh, the music's not as uh, as crazy as Sid music will eventually become, but let's take a listen to this real quick. I certainly don't want to go in that for us. Oh, man. Necromancer <laughs> yeah. was a really happy yeah. tune. By yeah, compared to my comparison. Yes. <laughs> you know, I, it's funny because uh, Hardcore Gaming 101 did a review of, of this game, and I'd never heard of it, but it's apparently a really well-remembered early C64 game, and I can totally see why if you're walking into it. Yeah, I never played it, actually. 
No idea. It's an early survival horror game. You go in as an archer fighting spiders and um, birds and, and bats and, and all sorts of creepy monsters, and it gets darker as the night goes on, and this sort of brooding, saw-heavy music plays throughout the entire thing. It's kind of tense just watching a video. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, Sid, I mean, I'm sure you've talked about Sid, but, you know, the thing about it is just, uh, you know, functionally speaking, in, in the kinds of things it's doing, it's it's the same as as what Namco's doing with its, its waveform stuff and whatnot, but... There's, there are so many channels and there are so many filters that are included in this thing that you can just push that kind of thing much further and have a much richer, more complex sound than you could with uh, any of the other waveform or programmable sound generator stuff going on at the time from other companies. I mean, absolutely. Giannis was just so far ahead of his time. And of course, you know, he was a co-founder of Insonic. So, I mean, this was just, <laughs> it was his passion, <laughs> this totally. synthesizing stuff. Totally. Uh, moving along to May of 83, uh, we have a track here from the Atari version of Mule, uh, which was composed by Roy Glover. Let's take a listen to this real quick. That's a great one. That is an awesome tune. Yeah. I was inspired to put this into the show because you guys did an entire episode on the early history of electronic arts, and I didn't yep. realize this is one of their launch games. Yeah. Yes. Oh, no kidding. It is. Yeah, like one of the first games they made after they incorporated as a company. And Mule, I have been hearing about that one for many, many years. And it's funny you mentioned this. It was not that big of a success at the time, but it still right. has more longevity than some of their other bigger selling games from the time, which is funny Absolutely. how that works. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, it it was uh, apparently heavily pirated, which which helps explain that longevity uh, <laughs> a little bit as well. <laughs> Quite frankly, that's the that's the word on the street. But yeah, I mean, it, it didn't have a lot of uh, success at the time, but. You know, it's it's a very early multiplayer experience on uh, PC platforms. It it had a a great impact on a lot of game designers. It was really a game designers kind of game, uh, and so it was it had an outside it outsized influence compared to its uh, commercial success. All right, should we move on? We've got yeah, a few more examples. We're, we're keeping it rolling. We got a uh, November of eighty three. We have Spy Hunter from Bally Midway. It's a top-down racer. This one's another one of those arcade games that gets cloned a lot. Yeah, and it used the theme from Peter Gunn. So. Composed by Henry Mancini. Yeah, let's take a listen. Yeah. 
See, when I first heard this this track, or when I first heard that it was from Peter Gunn, um, I was actually blown away because I always just associated it with Spy Hunter. Always, I did too. Like that right. was it was th- that was a Spy Hunter <laughs> song to me. So, yeah, popular arcade top-down racer that uses that that theme that we uh, all know and love that apparently is from another <laughs> something else, and uh, it's kind of supposed to be like a James Bond kind of game that uh, didn't get any of the licenses, so they just went with. Peter Gunn themes. Spy Hunter, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> let's move it along. On uh, January of 84, this is this is one that came to us from our Discord channel from uh, Electric Boogaloo, Tube Panic, developed by Fuji Tech and published by Nichibutsu. It was composed by Ryoichi Yamada and Ichiro Takagi, who is uh, not credited on it. That's a really good track. I love that B section. Yeah. First first appearance of that from me this episode. 1984, huh? Wow. Yeah. 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 I mean it's it's basically a clone of like Gyrus. Or Gyrus. Yeah. But the music definitely they're they're leaning heavily on popular composition. That's bossa, yeah. whatever you want to call it. Like we're hearing real music here. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Certainly complex. So let's jump ahead to um, March of 84, just a few months later, and we got Pitfall 2 that was developed and published by Activision and uh, designed and composed by David Crane. This is a, a, a pretty pretty big one. I mean, Pitfall 1 was a, a major milestone, I think, for Activision, but Pitfall 2... Oh, absolutely. Um, on, the, on the Atari 2600, I, I forgot to Right, right, that. right. But Pitfall 2 was um, um, also a pretty groundbreaking, I think. I feel like they learned so much more um, by the time they did Pitfall 2 that they, they could have incorporated in the first one. Now, the first one is definitely a classic. And I oh, love right. It, but. And, of course, uh, you know, David Crane did create a custom chip, which uh, allowed for some pretty wild stuff on the Atari 2600 that wouldn't normally be doable. Right. And, you know, it's very interesting. I mean, that's 
just as a, a very brief tangent, I mean, you know, that's part of what allowed the Nintendo Entertainment System to last as long as it did and, and be as brilliant as it was because they extended the life of that system so much through custom chips uh, within the cartridges themselves. Exactly. And that's something that Atari, you know, never figured out with the VCS that may have been helpful. But here, David Crane, at the end, kind of too little too late because it's already 1984, you know, custom chip. And then look at how much more you can do uh, graphically, but also uh, with the audio. Exactly, exactly. We have a few more examples here from mid to late 1984 uh, before we close out on this period of time. This is from the Tower of Drago. We talked about this earlier um, game from Namco. It's a maze action RPG composed by Junko Ozawa. And we've, I th- have we played this on the show? We have not. How have we, we might, never played, played this? Remix? I don't know. <laughs> I, it's funny. We've talked about it a number of times. This game is a huge, huge influence on Japanese on game everything. developers. Everything. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Tower of Drago. Let's, let's take a quick listen to the music. intro jingle is thick yeah it's, it's really good <laughs> yeah it's really good yeah they're using an eight channel uh waveform sound generator instead of the earlier three version so we have much bigger arcade sound compared it's, to before this, the same hardware as the uh super pac-man cabinet mm-hmm. yeah 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 but the yep. original pac-man cabinet namco pac-man only had three channels so we right. get much you know richer, richer exactly. sound here and and once again this is namco uh you know pushing the boundaries junko ozawa uh a female composer actually um was one of those hires by onogi that onogi mentored and who became one of the the foundational people that created this namco sound and it's just about mixing these waveforms in in really inventive and beautiful ways to create meaningful music and tower of Druaga, um makes me sound like I have a lisp. Tower of Druaga (laughs) uh, was a humongous influence on The Legend of Zelda. I mean, you don't see Miyamoto going on the record about it, but if you look at the presentation of the game, if you look at many of the enemies in the game, this, this is the starting point for The Legend of Zelda. And, you know, I don't know how much Koji Kondo was influenced by the music in Druaga when doing the Zelda music, but it's, it's the same kind of thing. It's got this kind of bouncy, heroic you know, vaguely classical sounding thing. I mean, you know, just like, dun, da, 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 you know, <laughs> it's, it's very much present in this as well. And I, I have to imagine, uh, it was an influence there. So, uh, Druaga again, uh, there's a series of Namco games here, Xevious, Mappy and Druaga specifically that were never big in the U S because this was the period of time when the U S market was completely falling apart. But these games set the tone for Japanese game development throughout the entire 8-bit time period and beyond. Just massively in, uh, influential, and not just in gameplay, but also in audio and in music. Namco really did create the entire uh, mode of 
Japanese uh, video game music, and most video game music in this time period was either an imitation of that or was a counter to that. For instance, just really fast, uh, Hip Tanaka, one of his primary goals with Metroid was to create the anti-Namco score. No hmm. more bouncy, no more happy, no more da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Uh, right. You know. He succeeded. And he, he did. <laughs> he succeeded. He definitely did. <laughs> so, uh, Gene, you got another track yes. from December of 84. So this is I, another one that was too cool to leave off. Another Coleco, but this one from the Coleco Atom, the short-lived computer system. And if you want to hear more about the failed bid for early computers, listen to They Create Worlds. They talk all about it. But this is the first home port of Dragon's Lair. So the arcade game comes out on Laserdisc. It's super impressive. Everybody wants it. And we have what eventually becomes, you know, the, the Coleco Atom nobody remembers, so it gets ported to the Commodore 64 later. But this music is from the Atom version. So let's take a listen. That's really cool. I, you know what? For me, this was such a surprise because I think I had to sort of unpack my own prejudices and assumptions. I mean, I think you and I, like a lot of other VGM listeners, have a very strong association with Japanese video game music is the video game music, at least the early stuff. That's where yeah. the industry was. That's where all of the memorable tunes were. And, you know, there's the C64 leg, too. But there's so many of these early experiments from the the American devs, you know, Pitfall 2, Dragon Slayer, Subrock, you know, these really cool yep. experiments that just get forgotten about. Because did you just of, clump Subrock? Oh, yes, I this? did. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. And, and it's because the crash was going on at that time. Right. So, I mean, this this was cresting and peaking and just starting to get interesting right when the bottom fell out of the market. And so not as many people remember it or think about it uh, today. And there just wasn't enough of a critical mass. I mean, how many examples from right. Namco have we played? They, they built yeah. a legacy based on game after game after game with great music and, and, you know, leaps and bounds on the sound. So, well, and then the other thing you have to say about Namco as well is that then they were the ones that pr were primarily responsible for mainstreaming the idea of video game music as a separate art form, because uh, in tandem with Yellow Magic Orchestra, who obviously uh, were always very, very interested in uh, the way video game music worked. But, you know, another reason that Onogi, uh, who we talked about a few times, uh, is considered the father of Japanese video game music is that in 1984, uh, he worked with uh, Harumi uh, Hosono of Yellow Magic Orchestra to create the very first video game music releases, you know, LP releases or whatever you want to call them. Video game music and Super Xevious were released as albums in 1984, and it was because of a collaboration between totally. Nogi and a member of YMO. Totally, totally. And that and, was I mean, kind of ground they, zero that's one in thing Japan that I wish, for this. Go ahead. Oh, no, that's what I was saying. Like, I, I wish that we would have had in the U.S. I mean, it's it's too late now, but I wish we would have had some influences like that, like Yellow Magic Orchestra in, in the U.S. on the West side that uh, would have allowed um, better adaptation of or more acceptance of 
of game mm-hmm. music as an actual medium than, you know, having to kind of force itself into um, popular culture like it had to do later yeah. on, like in the late 90s. Yeah, it happened way later, almost by way of Japanese video game music. You have the European sound now and the, the the American guys are much more influenced by the Japanese stuff because of the way the industry played out, which is kind of funny. Uh, we got one more example. Um, I know we talked about this one before, and this is one people always talk about. This is from Marble Madness, released in December of 1984. And this paves a way for a brand new kind of era of of game audio and what we can expect because it's the first time to use the YM2150 one. So let's take a listen to Marble Madness. We played this before, I'm sure. We did not play this track. So, okay, let's take a listen to uh, Marble Madness composed by Brad Fuller and Hal Cannon. to hear that yamaha soundtrack oh yeah they, yeah it's almost like it had been out for years and they already knew like everything like to do with it it's so interesting i can't remember where i read this but i'm pretty sure that the way they got those sounds was just like fiddling with parameters and putting them to maximum and just like isn't going that, to extreme isn't that what just fm synthesis is uh, well fm synthesis <laughs> i've heard described as trying to um program a synthesizer by pushing a broom through a mail slot so okay (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, that's nice (laughs) that that is our last example for the show because obviously fm synthesis opens up a whole new era 85 86 the nintendo starts getting big all of this stuff happens in the the modern game industry uh, you know that we sort of the, this is kind of the end of that part that people don't talk about as much. And that's how right. they create worlds. End of story. Bye. Yeah. No, <laughs> <laughs> no it's, it's been a real blast having you guys on the show. Um, I, I did oh, want to ask a real quick question before we do our little wrap up. Was there anything in particular you wanted to bring up that was surprising or interesting you found in your research that pertains to game audio specifically? So um, I've kind of already talked about some of this uh, already uh, throughout the course of the episode, but just learning about the rich history of Namco in music and how the Namco sound really, really defined the way video game music was done in Japan for, you know, a good decade at least was not something that I was fully cognizant of and was was very interested to learn about. Excellent. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I think that just going through this episode too, it's very different than our other shows where we have more of a music focus. This was more of a history focus. And I, and I'm really, really happy that we got a chance to do this because it was a learning experience for, for Gene and I too. And we, we talk about game music all the time and looking at some of the, the actual history on the Namco side, like you mentioned was, um, mm-hmm. kind of eye opening too. Yeah. I and mean, some of it's kind of like 
like right in front of you and you just don't see it. You know what I mean? There's yeah. some blatantly obvious examples, but then there's the whole other side that, you know, Namco, we don't think of some of the early, early, early stuff really paving the way, which it ended up doing, which, you know, came out in the research. So I think that's really, that's really awesome. Yeah. I mean, doing yeah. the research for this show was a ton of fun, but I loved having you guys on to fill in the blanks. Like all of that stuff about Namco being a huge influence on Nintendo seems hundred percent obvious in retrospect. Yeah, but right. without you saying it, it didn't really. Oh well, it of didn't course. click. It's yeah. It's, yeah well, yeah, it's, that's what because, I'm saying. It's like, right like in front I of said, you. Yeah, because like I said, though, you know, Namco was doing some of its most important work right when the bottom was falling out of the American industry. So those Namco games that were so influential on Nintendo uh, barely registered in the United States at the time because there was no market. Right. Really interesting. It's been a whirlwind. I, th- I think yeah. we gotta we gotta close this out though, and uh, <laughs> yep. give everybody yeah. some time. Thank you for having us on. Oh, yeah. it's been fantastic so, to have you guys on. So yeah, so today we covered uh, pretty much uh, a good span of game audio from this the late 70s, 77 about to nineteen eighty four, and then we kind of just hit the hit the off switch there and <laughs> stopped because that covers the first kind of um, uh, part of your book that uh, is just released, the first volume. And so sticking right. in that area, I think, really works to um, kind of coincide with your book. So. Yeah, and if you want to come back when your second volume is released, let us know. We'll, we'll do, uh, our, next we'll do our next one. Volume two. I'd love to. <laughs> I'd absolutely love to. Obviously, there's a lot of rich stuff to talk about with uh, with game music in the uh, in the late 80s and early 90s, which is what the, the next book will cover. So awesome. All that awesome. classic chiptune stuff that people love. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you guys so much for being on the show. It, it was a, a blast having you. Oh, thank likewise. you very much Thanks for having us. It's a lot of fun. If you guys want more on the show, then check us out online at pixelatedaudio.com for show notes and the track list. We can also be found on Twitter at Pixelated Audio and on our Discord channel. Yeah, and you can find the link to that on the website and join right in, join the discussion. we got a lot of really great chatter going in there. And if you like the show, you can support us on Patreon if you want to. If not, it's all good. Yeah, leave us an <laughs> iTunes review, you know, give us feedback where you can. Alex, Jeff, where can we find you? Well, you can find us at theycreateworlds.com. We can be found on Twitter at TCW Podcast. And if you want to go directly to start looking at our show notes and some of our back catalog, just go to podcast.theycreateworlds.com. And we'll have yep. links to all your all stuff in the, show notes, in the, yeah. in the, our show notes. So uh, you should be able to, if you're listening to this, you can just click on the show notes and, and see it there. Absolutely. And and then cool. real fast, the book as well, uh, They Create Worlds, the story of the people and companies that shape the video game industry. Uh, that's available direct from the publisher, CRC Press. Uh, it's also at Amazon.com and uh, other major online retailers. Awesome. And uh, if you've never shopped from Amazon.com, they, uh, they have some great stuff there. So. <laughs> <laughs> so Anyways. I've heard. So I've heard. Anyway, uh, if you're new to our show, make sure you check out some of our past episodes. We did a uh, man. What did we do last? We did a big talk about teeth. We and, also did uh, a show that's coming out soon. Uh, it's not released yet, but it will be by the time this is out on uh, Kaze no Notam. Oh yeah, the yeah, hot the, air balloon game um, with an excellent chill soundtrack. Yes, very relaxing. Yeah, and, talked to, yeah. We talked about also. Man, what was before that? I'm like, I'm I'm blanking. The last uh, Alex Four. That's, oh yeah, that was Alex, it, yeah. That's sort of the right. history of the early 2000s of indie mobile development before cell phones took off, which is another one of those kind of forgotten eras of gaming. Yeah, the Windows Mobile time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, if you're interested in more of the early history, you can listen back to episode 116 where we covered Gyrus in depth. Uh, we talked about just about every version except for maybe like the ColecoVision. Yeah. And uh, episode 112, the Library of Congress, where we covered a much wider span and a much 
shorter period shorter of time. time. <laughs> so we, we got to go into much more depth on this one, which so, was awesome. So Alex, Jeff, some of the, the standout episodes that you guys want to um, bring up for our listeners that we should check out first. Um, do you have any that come to mind? Uh, one that might be very accessible to just about anyone is the complete Tetris story. The story of Tetris oh, yeah. is completely out there already, and a lot of people know it. But I think that we really presented it in a very complete and comprehensive way that I think it's very accessible for someone to go, hey, I know a little bit about Tetris. I like Tetris. Heck, I played Tetris 99 on a Nintendo Switch. I want to know more about it. Another one that we uh, did recently that I also think uh, we did a very good job on is uh, for Christmas this year, we did a very special Christmas episode on everyone's favorite Christmas game, E.T., and (laughs) tried to contextualize it better, still recognizing the monumental failure and uh, poor game that it was, while also taking a step back and being like, but here's all the things that were surrounding it. And and maybe even a better put together E.T. game would not have necessarily been much more of a success. So I, I think that's another uh, good entry one. We haven't really done anything specifically focused on uh, audio uh, as of yet, uh, but those are a couple of, of good accessible episodes, I think. Awesome. All right, so we got one last track taking us out of the show. This is also December of 1984. This is Rank Theme 2 from Konami's Road Fighter, sort of a clone of Spy Hunter. Everything was a clone of everything. Uh, uh, Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) It was composed by Yoshinori Sasaki, and you can already start to hear the early Konami sound starting to form. Yes. Alex and Jeff, thank you guys so much for joining us again, and we will see everyone back in a few weeks for the next episode.